I think it's very important to build your conviction. One of my biggest learnings is that I think without the conviction that I had, there were a lot of times where I had my back against the wall and it was it would have been very easy for me to toss a towel in and give up. But I think once an entrepreneur finds their conviction, that will power you through your darkest days. And so if I have one piece of advice, really try and find your conviction. This episode is brought to you by Slice. Slice is a creator CRM to help brands, agencies, and talent managers better manage their relationships with content creators and influencers for better brand deals. Uh, I'm the CEO of Slice. Uh, and you know, let me tell you what Slice is kind of more in layman's terms. Uh, basically, we want to help content creators go full-time. And we believe the best way to do that is by getting them more brand deals. That's going to get them more money so that they can leave their jobs uh, and do bigger and better things like start companies, start D2C businesses. Um, but, you know, for me, from my perspective, I I was managing a team of 15 people uh, a year ago uh, doing all these brand campaigns. And it was a really manual process, uh, creating a list to, you know, to send, you know, send to the brand uh, for approval might take three to five days. Uh, Slice can do that in five minutes. Uh, reporting, it would take my team two weeks to send out a report, right? Because they would have to get screenshots of all the analytics from all the content creators. They would have to then like verify that they would then like manually add up all of that data and then put it into a PowerPoint to send to the client. That is ridiculous. And so our, you know, because all of our content creators connect their accounts, uh, we get that report within 24 hours of the last post, right? So we really simplify all of that for uh, for the brands and the agencies. So that's kind of why I built this product is because uh, I was tired of spending so much time uh, on all of that. Well, not me, but the team, right? But you know, if you're you're a brand and you're you run a one week campaign, but it takes two weeks to get a, a report. That's that's kind of ridiculous, right? So again, right now for the brands and the agencies, we're helping them simplify their lives and work faster. Uh, in turn, what we're hoping is that all of these content creators can make more money uh, more consistently and they can then go full time, right? So again, there's a lot of things that we're building uh, for Slice, you know, especially on the creator side. So go check it out, slice.id. Uh, and if you have any questions, email me personally, uh, jesse at slice.id. Uh, and if you sign up, if you're an agency brand, uh, you want to sign up talent manager, uh, use my promo code, right? You're listening to the side door podcast, use the promo code side door, uh, and that's going to give you 50% off for the first three months, uh, that you use it. Right. So I would, I would use that, check it out. Uh, again, Hit me up, jesse at slice.id. If you have any questions, if you have any suggestions, anything you need, I can help you out. Uh, that's enough for this host red ad. Now let's get on to the episode. Blockchain, cryptocurrencies, Web3. I'm sure if you've spent any time online, you've heard these terms. Uh, but you know, for a lot of you, you probably don't know exactly what they mean or you know, a lot of the associated terms. Uh, we're in the middle of what they call a crypto winter, right? Because the price of all of these cryptocurrencies has plummeted, right? So a lot of people uh, have lost a lot of money. Uh, but we're still in the early stages of cryptocurrency and everything Web3 blockchain, right? To be honest. Uh, back in 2013, I bought my first Bitcoin for about like $175. And I think I sold it for around $300. Uh, so I am clearly not a crypto millionaire, right? That one still hurts. Uh, and, you know, I bought 
since then, you know, a um, couple dozen NFTs, right? Uh, and it's, you know, even for me working in tech, um, the whole process of buying and selling these these assets uh, has been a little bit tricky. And I've been scammed before, right? Uh, I think I got scammed out of a couple hundred bucks trying to buy a an NFT last year. Uh, and so for if, if it's difficult for me, if it's a little bit more cumbersome, I, then, you know, for the average person, uh, what's it like? It's probably very, very daunting. Uh, and then you have all the news of like the FTX scandal where people lost $10 billion. And then there's a bunch of other crypto exchanges uh, that have gone bankrupt as well, right? So there's like a cloud kind of hovering over the entire uh, industry. But that's not to say that, you know, cryptocurrency Web3 is like dead, that it's a bad thing, that it's never going to recover. I think we're still in the very early stages of all this. Um, and so I thought this would be a good time to have the CEO of a crypto exchange come on. Uh, and then we could start to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, some of these definitions, uh, how, you know, crypto exchanges like his can uh, build trust with with the users, right? And so that you can avoid getting scammed and buying kind of like these shit coins that, uh, you know, go go to zero, right? So uh, today on the pod, we have Jeff Tutoyo, right? He is the co-founder and CEO of Pintu. Uh, so Pintu uh, is a crypto exchange in Indonesia, right? So uh, I wanted to talk to him, an expert, to get you know a little bit more depth into uh, what's going on, a little more information for you guys in case uh, you're thinking about crypto or you're a little bit worried about some of the investments that you've made. Uh, so I think we had a really good conversation. Uh, I'm excited to share it with you. So here is my conversation with Jeff Sutoyo. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks for having me, Jesse. Excited to be here. You've been pretty busy the past few weeks, so let's dive into it. So before we get into all the craziness, right? I think let's start at the you know in the beginning at a high level. What is Pintu and what's the vision that you guys are building towards? Sure. So Pintu is a mobile-first retail brokerage app based out of Indonesia. We serve Indonesian clients and we try and target the retail mass market here in Indonesia. Our whole vision with setting up Pintu is to build a cryptocurrency bank. We believe that as an asset class, crypto is going to play a, a major role in the Indonesian market. And we believe it deserves a, a platform that's solely focused on crypto. And so that's why we're here. Got it. Okay. So crypto, big opportunity. We'll talk about like where you see it, where you see Indonesia. But I'm, I'm very curious, like how you got here, right? So what was your background and what made you want to start Pintu? Yeah. So before Pintu, I was working in the States. I worked at a company called Consensus. They're basically a blockchain incubation lab where they would start many different crypto projects. And a few that you might know, one of them being MetaMask, another being Infura. And so when I was working there, the project that I was working on was called Liquality. So what they were trying to solve for is being able to trade and transact between different tokens or cryptos between different chains trustlessly. So they tried to implement what's called a cross-chain atomic swap. And so I worked there for about a year helping out with the product. When it was time for me to come back home, and oh, so for a little bit of context, uh, while I was working there, I was also going to school. I was getting my master's degree. So when, as I graduated, I decided that I wanted to go home and I realized, you know, my own experience with crypto in Indonesia was not, wasn't that great. When I first bought my crypto, 
And in Indonesia, the platforms weren't that great. And so I thought that there could we could there was an opportunity to build a, a better platform to serve people just like me in Indonesia. And so that's when we I decided to start Bintu. Got it. Right. So I got a couple of questions there. One is your role at consensus, right? Were you like an engineer or were you kind of like more on the product side? Like what was what was your specific role? Yeah, so I was helping out with the product side. Oh, I was helping out with the product side. I think Consensus is very much a technical company as well. A lot of great projects coming out of there. And the people around me were very much, I would say, crypto diehards. And I think that experience and that exposure really taught me the fundamentals and the ideology as well around crypto. And I, I really got to meet a lot of great people there who also shared and helped me understand how blockchains work on a fundamental technical basis. And I think, yeah, that, that, was, that was what I thought was the, the best part of my experience there. It was really beyond the product side, really understanding the technical side as well. Got it. Yeah. The, uh, crypto from a technical standpoint is very, very interesting. I remember, you know, first learning about, you know, Bitcoin, right. As the first foray into crypto. So like, what, what was it that you kind of got you started in blockchain and crypto? And then like, what, what was your like light bulb moment that was like, this is, this is what I want to spend my time on. Yeah. I think that light bulb moment came from a few different realizations, not a specific moment, but the realization of a few different concepts. I think first of all, from a macroeconomic policy standpoint, I realized that money in its current form is not really backed by anything. And so um, you take that and you also take the technological fundamentals of crypto and how it's built as a peer-to-peer open and free network and combine the two, it gave me a realization that this could be a new form of value, first of all. And second of all, it could also be a new and free to use network where people could build new new applications and new innovations on top of it. And you, you take that in parallel to how the banking system today works, which is a closed loop system. You, I, I kind of realized that you know this would potentially bring in a whole new revolution of how people use money and how people build applications concerning money. And so I thought that was a pretty exciting field to be in. And yeah, that's, I think, where where I decided I want to spend most of my time in. So when you were in the US when this happened and you had said that when you came back to Indonesia, you were when you were in Indonesia, you had some unpleasant or difficult experiences with crypto, right? So with that kind of light bulb moment, did you did you have like, hey, this is has a lot of applications in Indonesia in mind, or was it a broader the whole, you know, financial global banking system, this is a, a huge opportunity. Well, to be honest, when I first started with Pintu, the problem that I was trying to solve was just very simple. Just trying to solve my own problem that I own experience with, with crypto. Obviously, I understood the potential behind crypto and everything that it entails. But where I started was just a very small problem, I think, at the time, which was very poor on-ramp, off-ramp, onboarding user flow with very much the, the platforms at the time were very much geared towards more pro niche users who or, or people who were already in, in blockchain and crypto. And so I thought that for 
the for the majority of Indonesians who are not only new to crypto, but also new to the concept of investing and, and trading, I think at the time that there needs to be a better platform to serve these type of people, including myself, right? And so that's when I started developing the idea around Pin2More. And when you started Pin2, were there other exchanges, right? Like I got started in crypto, Bitcoin, once Coinbase came yeah. available, right? Because I was not savvy enough to buy crypto in, in the other or mine it, right? So was there other options for Indonesians at the time to to buy currencies? Yeah, there was. So there was Indodex. And back then, it was called Bitcoin.co.id. And so that was like my first experience of buying crypto. I was using that platform back in the day. They, they've been around actually for the longest time. They, I think they launched their service somewhere around 2013, 2014. Yeah. So they're around, but for you as a user, you, you found that there were still opportunities to make it easier for more people, right? So when you launch, are you just offering Bitcoin, Ethereum, or are you, you know, because there's a whole host of cryptocurrencies that you can buy sure. and sell? Yeah. So when we first started, we just launched two. I think it was Bitcoin and Ethereum. Predominantly, that, the, the reasoning behind that was also because we thought that we wanted to offer users the crypto that were the blue chips of the industry and, and so to speak, in terms of risk, much less compared to the other newer cryptocurrencies. Because at the time we were coming out of the 2017 bubble where a lot of ICOs happened, a lot of pump and dumps happened. And so we thought that in the beginning, it was very important to focus on trust. And so the availability of tokens were also, were also very limited and it was intentionally limited so that people won't get burned too much by these other tokens. So like I said earlier, crypto is in like this wild west phase, right? So regulation hasn't caught up with the pace of things that are evolving. Uh, on the blockchain in crypto, right? And this also changes from country to country, right? So people, uh, you know, it, some people can buy on different exchanges, some can't, right? So it's really hard to kind of track the regulation and what is going on with all this. Uh, and, but I'm, I'm talking to Jeff sp specifically about um, Indonesia, right? And so how is Pintu approaching this, right? How are they, you know, building that trust? How are they making sure that their customers, their users are are safe and protected, right? There's there's no foolproof option, right? But they, they you know, I think they, they're doing a really good job of kind of uh, assessing these different projects, right? And, you know, he was really good at um, clarifying some of the, t uh, the terminology, you know, like the difference between uh, tokens, coins, and, you know, tokenomics. And these are things that, um, you know, a casual uh, user might not be fully aware of, right? And so uh, he was kind enough to explain all of this uh, to us. So uh, that's what's happening right now. So let's, let's learn more about uh, Pintu and trust and safety. Yeah, so trust is a reoccurring theme when it comes to crypto, and we can get more into that. But I think, how do you, you know, part of that is, maybe this is how I, I view it, right? But the exchanges that I, I, I buy and sell crypto on, I... I believe that they would have some kind of vetting process and maybe I'm I'm being naive, right? But I know like Coinbase doesn't allow 
I don't think at the time they allowed you know Dogecoin to be bought and sold on their platform. Or if they do now, for a long time they didn't, right? And so, what was your team's process on expanding the number of tokens that were available to your users? Right, you start. You started with Bitcoin, you started with Ethereum, but now, I mean, how many tokens are available? And then, yeah, how did you choose yeah, I think on board? Sure. I think today we have almost 120, roughly. I think that's the number. The way we select new tokens or coins to list is we look at it from a number of factors. I think it's it's never like a singular, a singular you know, variable that you try and look at, but a number of different variables. Because very much, it's very much a community game, right? So you look at, first of all, the community around it. You look at the development. Um, you look at the technology behind it. You look at the the pace of the team's execution and the team itself. And you also look at the regulatory impacts and the regulatory stance towards the tokens and coins. So we we try and look at it from a, a number of different factors. Oh, and lastly, I forgot as well, tokenomics is probably a, a very important aspect as well. We want to make sure that it, the coins or tokens that we list have good tokenomic design. Can you describe or define what tokenomics means? Yeah, tokenomics. I don't necessarily know how to define it, but maybe let, let me describe it, right? The tokenomics is basically the incentive mechanism or economic mechanism behind how the coins are generated, how the coins are used on the platform, and how the supply of the coins are gained in the ecosystem, whether it is minted all up front, whether it is generated through mining or through other forms of mechanisms. All of this really comes down to the point of how you incentivize people to use the blockchain or the tokens and how they can accrue value to the user over time. And so that's that's what we try to unpack, unravel, and we try to understand these projects. Because at the end of the day, you really want something that you provide to your users that accrues value in one way or another, right? You want you sort of like want the value to to go up over time. And so we try and list tokens that have good and healthy tokenomic designs. So just so I have it clear in my head, right? So Bitcoin, there was always like a finite number that would be mined over a certain period of time, right? But some of these new projects, I'm you know blanking on some names, right? But I, I know that like they will say that there are X amount of tokens available. The founding team owns, you know, 50% of them. Yeah. yeah. And then the rest are available or, you know, so... Those are the kind of things that you are assessing and whether or not it's going to be a stable long-term project or potentially like a, you know, an ICO scam. Yeah, exactly. And and you also want to see the economic, the, the, the design of how the new tokens are introduced into the market for, for Bitcoin, you're rightly to point out that there's only going to be 21 million max cap tokens available and miners need to mine for it. Right. And then you've also got stuff like Ethereum, which initially was very much inflationary but ever since they introduced a new proposal, like it became deflationary during certain periods of time. And so these things we also take into account. And then I guess maybe clarify for me and everyone else, 
right? You've been talking about cryptocurrencies and you've been talking about tokens, right? Are they one and the same or are tokens a subset of cryptocurrencies? I think generally speaking, people refer to cryptocurrencies as the crypto that is native to a certain blockchain. So for example, Ethereum. Ethereum is like a layer, a layer one blockchain. So cryptocurrencies really I think now has evolved into the understanding that they are layer one blockchains. Tokens are generally applications or a product that is built on top of these layer ones. So you've got different types of tokens on Ethereum, for example, like Uniswap, like Aave, like Compound. These are tokens that are native to uh, those specific protocols, those specific applications that are built on top of the layer one cryptocurrency blockchains, if that makes sense, Jesse. Yeah, I think that makes sense because that's kind of like my follow-up question. It kind of leads into like, you know, the future FTX conversation, right? But so you guys have a Pintu token, right? Yeah. And and so other people have their tokens. And I guess one more definition. Tokens, are they different than stable coins? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So tokens again goes back to the tokenomic design takes many flavors and many forms. But generally speaking, they're very much different from stable coins. Stable coins are built basically to mimic a stable currency, a stable form of value, whether it is a specific national currency or, or tied to a basket of currencies or a basket of assets. But the idea is that you know, crypto and, and different types of tokens are too volatile to be used on a day-to-day basis for day-to-day transactions, right? So we, we need a, a, a stable form of currency or value that is native to, to blockchains that can be used to transact that has a stable form of value. And stable coins itself could be unpacked to multiple different types, right? You've got the asset-backed stable coins similar to like Tether, USDC, or, or Rupiah token, where it's one-to-one asset-backed by fiat currency sitting in the bank account. That's like one form of stablecoin. You've got another form of stablecoins, which are algorithmic stablecoins, which wh- whose value is determined by an algorithm and the assets within and, and the assets that are tied to that stablecoin is bought and sold depending on the algorithm as well. Um, so you've got a, a, a few different types of stablecoins out there, but the functional goal is the same. So to have a stable form of value within the blockchain ecosystem. Okay. Whereas your tokens like Pintu token, whether it is like um, Binance, Binance's token BNB or FTX, they fluctuate in value based on the demand and supply in the market, based on their tokenomic design and a host of other factors. All right. So then I wanted to get into a little bit more into tokens, starting off with you guys have a token, right? The Pintu token. And so can you kind of describe, you know, why, why was it important for you guys to create one? And what is kind of like your vision for it? Sure. Our our whole vision for it from the very beginning was to engage our community. At the end of the day, I think the biggest, one of the biggest assets that a, a project within the crypto ecosystem has is the community. And we want to engage the community by using Pinto token, by providing rewards and loyalty mechanism for users who owns Pinto token and who takes Pinto token to get rewards on our exchange or our brokerage. And so the idea is basically very simple, which is to drive engagement. Okay. And just help me understand when you say drive 
rewards, right? It's to reward some kind of engagement yeah. on the platform. Like, uh, give me an example. Sure. So users hold a certain number of Pintu tokens. They get free withdrawals, bonuses on referrals, a free number of sendouts on the blockchain, items that we hope that will benefit the users. And the, the tokens have monetary value, correct? Yes. Okay. And so I guess this is starting to like segue into kind of like the FTX situation, right? Where uh, in a nutshell, right, the FTX has their own token or had, had had their own token. I don't know what context it is right now. Due to some competitor situations, right? They a competitor invested in them, then they were repaid in, in tokens, uh, and then they sold some and then things started to collapse, right? So there's a lot of fraud there. We, we can recap it later right but what what was the crux of that problem first off right like ex- can you explain that to you know people in layman's terms yeah i think the crux of the problem was wasn't necessarily that they had a token the problem was that they borrowed a lot of money from different lenders within the ecosystem and collateralized their own tokens for that purpose and so when all the lenders you know called back the loans and they've used the money for other purposes. And the only collateral left for the lenders to sell out is FTT, like that whole, the price cratered and the lenders were stuck with, were, were stuck with basically non-performing loans to FTX or Alameda. That's one thing that happened, right? But it was just, it wasn't just one thing, right, Jesse? And there's also a number of things. They also went out and used their customers' assets and use that for a bunch of purposes, whether it was to invest into Robinhood shares, whether it was to invest into different types of companies, whether it is to provide a loan to their own shareholders. There was a bunch of you know illegal activities that also happened in the background. And so what happened when customers redeemed, tried to redeem their money, there weren't any money left in within FTX. Got it. So it wasn't the concept of the token shouldn't be something that people are afraid of or are hesitant about, right? It's it yeah. was the players who who created it. They were doing fraudulent activities, which caused the you know their exchange to collapse, right? That's kind of like the nutshell version of it. Yeah, basically, basically. Uh, and so, you know, the ripple effects of the FTX collapse have you know we're just starting to understand, right? How deep. It goes from from investors, from you know governments to the consumers, right? But I guess kind of localizing it for Indonesia, right? How, you know, I think trust has is you know one of the biggest things you you had talked about it earlier, right? As one of the things for people getting into crypto, right? And so I imagine that one, you know, tell me how you've been building trust with your community up until this point, and then post FTX, like. How are you approaching it and educating people so that they understand that, you know, crypto tokens are not a, you know, you know, fraudulent in itself, right? And that, you know, business as usual can continue on on pin two. Sure. So prior to the FTX incident, we've always tried to educate customers through Pintu Academy, right? We have a, within our app, we have a section that caters to educating customers about the fundamentals around crypto and blockchains. And so that was a big part of our activity before FTX. Post FTX, 
We've also led a lot of efforts into providing more transparency into our operations. For example, we've released a blog report on how we manage our assets and how we've broken down the assets to liability ratio for each of the assets that are listed on Pintu. And so users know that for each of the tokens that are provided on Pintu, we have over one-to-one ratio between assets to liabilities. And we're in also in the process of getting that audited by a third third party auditor to make sure that, you know, it's not only us saying that, but you know, we've got a verified party also verifying those numbers. And I think that's very important, right? Because users at the end of the day don't have access or knowledge into the inner workings of centralized parties like us, like a number of global crypto exchanges. And so I think this will help build that trust with customers. And you're right, you know, trust has been broken in the last month or two. Actually, this whole year of trust has been broken, starting from the blow up of Luna, and then you've got Voyager, BlockFi, 3AC, and, and now FTX and Genesis. So trust has been broken and, and trust takes time to be rebuilt. And I think that is one of the bigger challenges for us as an industry, how to regain the trust of consumers. Yeah, so... I was going to ask, right, the crypto, you had mentioned crypto is very volatile, right? And that that's the reason for stable coins. And as someone who has just kind of like casually owned and traded some of these coins, right? I know the big swings, right? And we're in what, you know, some people call crypto winter, right? So how how is like the appetite for for crypto right now? Like, is it is it dropped to zero? Are people still interested or... Like, are they, is everyone just kind of like halting right now and, and waiting to see what happens? No, people, I definitely think people are still interested. I still think there's still demand for trading, for investing there. Although the interest has gone down a lot compared to last year, obviously, but I think the interest is still there. From For the general public though, I think it'll take more time before we see the level of interest that we saw in 2021 or earlier in the year. And I think... It's, it's normal, right? Jesse, we've gone through multiple cycles before as an industry. And I think this is one of those cycles. I would agree with that. But I think, you know, you said that the industry has gone through some pretty tumultuous times right now with a lot of these exchanges closing. So it's probably a little bit more difficult than before. So being one of the last few standing is probably a positive. But how is there like something that you think will help the industry turned the corner and get people thinking about crypto? Should they be thinking about crypto differently than just kind of like assets they can trade and sell to make money? Well, there's a lot of new applications, right? Being built beyond just trading and speculation. And I think you've, we as an industry need to also get customers involved in those type of applications. Um, because I think there's a lot of real use cases there as well beyond trading and, and speculation. And now probably is the best time, Jesse, to get involved. You know, during the bull market, there's too much distractions and there's too much speculation. And and now I think as you you get the tourists out of the industry, like the real development and the real building, you know, comes back and, and gets going. And I mean, if you're investing or trading, right, right now is probably the better time to to get your to get involved and not during the bull market. Like you don't want to be buying the highs, right? Yeah. You, you kind of want to be buying the lows. And so like, you know, I've, I've personally, and this is just my personal self, like, you know, I, now I think it's a great time 
from my opinion, to like, you know, start DCAing slowly. DCA is a term called dollar cost averaging, right? Buying slowly every week, every month, you know, and, and diversifying yourself into crypto slowly. Okay. Not, not investment advice. Yeah. Not investment advice. Shifting gears a little bit, right? So Pintu is a growing company and last year they raised $113 million, right? So that's a lot of money. Uh, and so uh, as you're, as you raise that amount of money and uh, your company is growing, the, you know, the DNA, the makeup of the company is changing a little bit, right? And so uh, you're hiring a lot more who you hire, how you hire them. Uh, all of this changes, right? And even like as a CEO, your role uh, starts to evolve and change as well, right? So uh, that's all, you know, coming from a scaling startup, right? So I wanted to talk to Jeff about like what his experiences uh, have been, you know, where, you know, any obstacles uh, they encountered and like kind of how they uh, overcame those, right? So I think this was a really neat opportunity for me to talk to someone uh, who's raised such a large round of funding. So I kind of want to I want to switch gears right and talk a little bit more about like the company building side of of Pintu right so sure um, I guess to kind of you know let's start when when you're in that you know that bull market right and everybody wants to invest I would assume that recruiting people is a lot easier because people want to work in that like hot industry right so how has you know, growing the team recruiting been changing since, you know, last year to this year? So I think last year, the challenge was keeping up with the demand for growth. We grew from a team of about 10, 15 people in 2020 to about 280 today. So I think that growth was was quite painful because you, you kind of need time, right, to to grow properly, and that bull run just didn't give us opportunity to grow properly. So the challenge was getting like enough people in the door. That was a challenge during the bull run. I think the challenge now with hiring is uh, just making sure we hire the right type of people. As you can imagine, like growing that fast, you you probably aren't as you know aren't as you don't pay as much attention i guess to, to to hiring it was it was to a certain degree a bit more of a quantity game rather than qualitative game and now i think it's it's very much qualitative qualitative game especially now with the backdrop of how the tech as a in general is is experiencing right yeah so i mean we're we're at the other spectrum of it right we're in our early stages just kind of recruiting our, our early team right and it's difficult, right? Finding the right people for the right roles. So I guess like if, you know, going from what you said, 1520 to 280 in, in a year is like, it's pretty phenomenal, right? That's, that's very high growth. I can only imagine how stressful hiring in that environment is like, so are there any less, you know, lessons or like things that you might change? You know, I think you talk about, you know, qualitative, quantitative, right? But in that in that high growth phase, are there are there filters that you would kind of add or, you know, any advice to people who are in that stage right now? Yeah, well, I think it's very important to find people who are passionate about crypto. And that's like one thing that we maybe didn't feel didn't filter out as much. And it's kind of difficult as well for us because as an industry, we're quite new in Indonesia. So there's there's not that many people who are passionate or or educated about crypto. Because to a certain degree, the learning curve around crypto is 
a bit steep, right? But if you have the passion, you you naturally like learn much faster outside of work as well. I think it's better also to hire slowly, hire slower than rather than hire fast. It's it costs much more to undo a bad hire, I think. And so yeah, I think the, the general learning for me is is if you if your gut says like it's it's uncertain about a hire, like probably you should lean towards and know for that. Got it. That's good advice. And and you guys recently raised like a pretty large series B round. So you're shifting from like series A, kind of getting that product market fit, scaling into that larger organization, right? So from, from your perspective, like as a CEO, like what are some things that have changed? What are some things that like maybe you found more difficult or that you're working on as a leader as the organization grows? Yeah, I think now is not as much or not as much trying to get into the weeds of things, but trying to put people in place that could execute. I think naturally I I tend to to like micromanaging in the past, but I think now as the role as the company grows bigger, like how do I think about incentivizing and putting people in the right places to make sure that it grows beyond just me, right? I think that's the, the bigger challenge for me now. Definitely have a problem with micromanaging. I still need to do it, right? But like, I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs just want to get their hands dirty and and fix things. So, so like, how have you like taught yourself that like, you need to step back and then, you know, do as you said, empower people, put them in the right positions? Yeah, I think... Well, trust is to begin with, you need to, to be able to trust people before you can go into this exercise. And you also need to let people fail. I think at the end of the day, you need to let people give people the opportunity to fail. And because I think that's how people will generally learn the, the fastest without failing. I think they will never learn. Right. Or like it was a much slower process to learning. And so I think I need to learn to be okay with that. And I think I need to learn to teach people to be okay with that as well. Yeah, learning learning to fail, accepting it, that's definitely how everybody everybody learns, but people are afraid of it. So if we were to meet in a year, right, and celebrate an achievement of Pintu's in one year, what would that be? Yeah, so we'd love to grow beyond just Indonesia as well. We want to build products that not don't only cater to Indonesians, but also cater to the global market. Uh, whether it is pinned to within its current app or within a different product. I think that's part of our ambition as well. Our whole mission, right, Jesse, if, to, to, to tie it back is to accelerate the adoption of open and, and, and free financial systems like blockchains. And so we want to accelerate the adoption of that, I think also beyond Indonesia. Are but- what are the you know obstacles for for you to open up in another country just purely from a regulatory standpoint well regulatory is like probably one of the biggest factors but also the product needs to be catered towards different types of user bases right and then you've also got to cater to different on ramps off ramps potentially different languages there's a number of things to consider as well interesting yeah International expansion is very interesting because in in this part of the world, you get to that point faster than you would like if you were in the US or China. So 
I like to end every interview with the same question. If you have one piece of advice for someone starting their first company, what would it be? Mm, that's a great question. I think it's very important to build your conviction. One of my biggest learnings is that I think without the conviction that I had, there were a lot of times where I had my back against the wall and it was it would have been very easy for me to toss a towel in and give up. But I think once an entrepreneur finds their conviction, that will power you through your darkest days. And so if I have one piece of advice, really try and find your conviction. I love it. That is, that's great advice. Jeff, thank, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Side Door Podcast. I appreciate any likes and ratings that you will give us. Uh, I really appreciate it if you share this with a friend. You know, we always appreciate a, a larger audience to hear uh, the stories of, of these entrepreneurs in Indonesia. Uh, if you go to sidedoor.xyz, that's going to take you to our Spotify uh, playlist. So you can hear all of the episodes there. You can subscribe there. Uh, and, you know, here we're doing a little bit more video. So if you go to sidedoor.video, that's going to take you to our YouTube channel. So you can subscribe there. You can watch the episode there uh, you can kind of track where my funky eyes are going and you know my weird faces that i make when people are speaking um, but you know uh, i'm pretty excited about this uh, we've got a lot more cool guests coming on uh, so you know appreciate any help that you can give me to, to spread the word of this podcast uh, if you have any suggestions for the pod or you know potential uh, guests uh, hit me up on twitter at jesse bowman until next time Stay curious.